all the lords and barons appear to agree with this, of course, until he dies. And then everybody says, nope, we're going after Stephen. He's a guy. He's going to be better at ruling. You can imagine the scenes, can't you? When Henry's like, you're all going to support my daughter, aren't you? And everyone's like, yes, Henry. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome back to the show. I'm Rebecca Larson. Today, I am joined by one of my favorite guests, somebody who hasn't been on this show in quite some time. I maybe want to call him my brother from another mother, Mr. Matt Lewis. Matt, welcome back. I take that. Thank you very much, Rebecca. That's a really nice introduction. I'm, I'm sorry I've been away for so long. Well, you... You've been kind of busy doing your own podcast and, you know, investigating the princes in the tower. Why don't you just give everybody just a quick recap of what you've been up to since the last time you were on? Yeah, none of that is a good excuse for not talking to you, though. Um, <laughs> I, so I do co-host Gone Medieval, which is History Hits Medieval podcast. Um, we have episodes every Tuesday and Friday. So mine go out on a Friday and we have Eleanor Yarniger doing episodes on a Tuesday now. I have been presenting some some films for History Hit too. So at the moment, I've got a three-part series on the Peasants' Revolt, which is coming out. So the first part is out on History Hit now. Uh, episode two will be following soon and three not far behind it. So episode three is actually a really interesting one because people tend to think about the Peasants' Revolt ending in London when Watt Tyler is murdered and that's the end of it and it's done but the whole of episode three is going to be explaining what happens after that the bit that doesn't normally get told we get the only pitched battle of the peasants revolt we've still got legal wranglings going on all over the country it's really interesting well, i hope it's really interesting anyway <laughs> and uh yeah so lots of princes in the tower stuff going on which is there's always princes in the tower stuff going on for me that's kind of my bread and butter um endlessly arguing with nathan amin about whether richard iii murdered them or not um <laughs> We seem to be stuck in a a never-ending perpetual doom loop of arguing <laughs> between us about whether it even happened or not. But I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, all of that keeps me busy, I think. Bit of writing, bit of TV <laughs> stuff, bit of podcast. And it's all good. It's all history and it's all good. It's amazing if we think back to maybe five years ago, even just the two of us where we were at that point to... I mean, I think I saw what a bright future you had back then. So seeing you where you are right now comes to like no surprise to me whatsoever. So congratulations on everything that you've accomplished. Oh, thank you very much. And I, I've only managed to accomplish any of that because people such as yourself were generous enough to give me a bit of airtime uh, and, and let me waffle on on your podcast. And, you know, and Tudor's Dynasty is going from strength to strength, absolutely getting to be where it deserves to be. Uh, and I'm incredibly grateful for the the early help that you gave me. Well, thank you. I'm just happy to have you back on the show again. Like I said, you've always been one of my favorite guests. Somebody recently said, have you ever had Matt Lewis on the show? And I kind of laughed like, yeah, I think I've had him on the show more than anybody else. <laughs> You're a good guest. Well, so recently I had Sharon Bennett Connolly on the show and we talked about the women of the anarchy. Anarchy, And we started that episode kind of talking about William the Conqueror, which, of course, you have to start with William. So we went from William the Conqueror to him, you know, eventually giving the throne to his son, William, who then mysteriously turns up dead in the new forest. And his brother, Henry, becomes king, leaving him dead in the forest. <laughs> yeah, a bit, of, a bit of brotherly love going on there. I just love that story so much. It's like... If that's actually how everything played out, it just comes off so suspicious. Yeah, just... I mean, you can just imagine Henry out there hunting and all of a sudden he's like, oh my God, my brother's dead. Anyway, <laughs> bye, I'm off to be king. <laughs> he doesn't even pick the body up. You know, absolutely nothing. Straight on his horse, straight to the royal treasury, straight to get himself made king. Right, exactly. Suspicious. So it almost seems like karma that Henry I would then lose his initial heir in the White Ship tragedy, right? Yeah, um, he must have felt, well, you know, we don't know that he was responsible for his brother's death, but he definitely swooped in when his other brother, Robert, arguably had a better right to the throne. So he definitely swooped in there. And in the medieval mind, you know, quite often things like the white ship disaster are, are punishments from God, considered to be punishments from God for the things you've done wrong. So Henry may well have been wondering whether it was all worth it when he loses his only legitimate son. 
Right. And so, so he loses his legitimate son. He names his daughter, Matilda, his heir. All the lords and barons appear to agree with this, of course, until he dies. And then everybody says, nope, we're going after Stephen. He's a guy. He's going to be better at ruling. You can imagine the scenes, can't you? When Henry's like, you're all going to support my daughter, aren't you? And everyone's like, yes, Henry. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, and we'll worry about this when you're dead. And I think the ultimate, so the, the ultimate thing with the anarchy for me, I think, is although Henry positions Matilda to succeed him, can he really be surprised when Stephen swoops in and takes the throne instead? Because that's exactly what Henry did to his own brother. That's just the way that succession worked in that period. So we can argue that Matilda had a better right to the throne than Stephen and plenty of people will. But then you have to argue that Robert Curtos has a better right to the throne than Henry I. And that doesn't stop Henry. So, you know, what, what he does is revisited on his daughter as well. So, and, and succession is such a tricky thing during this period as well. There, there is not really a right to succession. There is no right to the crown. It's whoever grabbed it, really. Absolutely. It's not until, so Henry III eventually changes the law in 1272. So 100 or so years from all of the stuff that we're talking about now, he would eventually change the law to say that on the king's death, his heir, his normally his oldest male son, will succeed automatically. Until that point, there is no automatic succession. Seems so foreign to us now, doesn't it? Yeah. We, can you imagine a world where we simply don't know who the next ruler is going to be, That where there is no mechanism for us to have any certainty, any continuity of government? When, when a medieval king dies during this period, prior to 1272, when a king dies, there is an interregnum. There is no king, which means there's no king's peace. There's no law to be upheld. And that's where you get people always desperate to see somebody on the throne as quickly as possible, even if it might not be the right candidate, if there's a right mm. one, it might not even be the best candidate, but it's someone who's there, willing to do it, willing to be the king. Once you've got a king, you've got king's peace that can be restored and the kingdom can go back to functioning. But can you imagine a country in the world today being in that position where there is just an absolute void of governance until somebody decides who's going to come next? Yeah, that would be kind of scary, wouldn't it? A little intimidating or, ne yeah, never knowing what's going to come next. You wake up one morning and suddenly you have this ruler that you didn't have a choice behind it. They're just now ruling your country and you have to deal with it. Yeah, and there's nothing you can do about it. Whether you agree with it or not is irrelevant. Right, you better just agree with it. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously, you know, it's like Henry I asking you if you'll support his daughter. You definitely have to agree with it while, while they're asking that's right okay so we're up to um henry the first now and um henry the first dies see now i'm going to get myself confused here stephen comes into the picture matilda's pushed off she tries fighting for the throne eventually realizes she's not going to win but in a stroke of luck or maybe a lot of intelligence she gets stephen to name her son Henry as his heir. Yeah, so there's there's a whole lot of messiness around all of this as well. So Empress Matilda, in 1141, we have this, this really critical year for the period that we call the anarchy. It's the, the one big year of really intensive action. So you have the Battle of Lincoln and Stephen is captured and taken prisoner. By the end of the year, you've had Empress Matilda trying to get herself crowned, being driven out of London, and then you get the rout of Winchester, where Robert of Gloucester, Matilda's half-brother, is taken hostage. There's a big hostage exchange between Stephen and Robert. And effectively, the chessboard is reset at the end of 1141 to exactly where it had been before that. And I suspect that, that the experiences of that year of being unable to get herself crowned make Matilda realise that England isn't going to accept a female ruler at this point. And she's pragmatic enough, I think, that she accepts that's what it is. And she she keeps the cause going then because she has this young son who's named Henry, probably for his grandfather. And she decides that her, her function then is to keep his claim to the throne alive and that it will be him who will restore uh, 
uh, her father's line to the throne. And I mean, you know, he's he Henry's a cheeky little chappy as a youngster. He invades England in his mid-teens. He brings over a bunch of of mates, lands on the south coast of England, and you get the, the chronicles all talking about. You know, the, the news of this runs like wildfire. Everyone is completely panicked. This guy has arrived with a humongous army and he's got crates and crates of treasure and he's going to blow everybody out the way. He's completely going to conquer England. And it turns out it's this 13-year-old kid with half a dozen knights and no <laughs> money. And so once the shock of that passes and everyone realises what's going on, Henry tries his best to storm some castles. It goes really, really badly. He finds himself embarrassed. He can't afford to pay his knights that have come with him. And he starts off, he goes to his mom and says, you know, mom, I've messed up a bit. Can I have some money to pay my knights so we can all go home? And Matilda says, no, no, you can't. You know, I didn't sanction this invasion of England that you've decided to undertake, you know, deal with your own mess, sort it out yourself. So Henry then goes to his uncle, Robert, his mom's half brother. Robert has been, uh, quite involved in Henry's upbringing at, at various points. He brought Henry to England when he was a little bit younger and provided him with a tutor. So they know each other quite well. So he rolls up at Uncle Robert's castle, knocks on the door and says, Uncle Robert, I've kind of messed up. Can I have some money to pay my nights off so we can go home? And Robert says, no, you can't. Mm. You know, if your mum says no, don't come asking me. <laughs> um, and so Henry then takes this really bold step of going to Stephen going to the man whose kingdom he's invaded to the the man who's been trying to defeat his mother and his uncle and everybody else he goes to Stephen and says Steve mate mate can I borrow some money to pay my nights off so they'll go home and to everybody's surprise Stephen says yep no worries here's the cash off you go and some of the chroniclers are absolutely bemused by what Stephen does yeah, you can see them thinking, what on earth is he playing at? But I think it's an interesting move because in many ways, Stephen wins. So for a start, he gets this army out of England. It's only a, a small force of a few knights, but it's slightly embarrassing to have them traipsing around the south of England, trying to attack castles. So Stephen gets them out of the kingdom. He gets to slightly embarrass Henry because Henry's had to have his knights paid by his enemy. But there is also an element in which I think it creates this little well of of sympathy between them or some kind of beginnings of a relationship between the two of them that effectively Stephen has rescued Henry's honour and allowed him to maintain his his chivalric position as a leader of men. His mom didn't do that and his uncle didn't do it, but Stephen has done it. So when Henry returns to England as nearly an adult, you know, he's in his late teens, by medieval terms, he's a, an adult. He's leading the invasion of England again. And we get this interesting position where we've now got Henry as a serious threat to Stephen. And the two of them are just dancing around England, desperately trying to avoid each other. It, it's like one of those fights where it's like, you know, if this guy wasn't in the way, well, I'd so be beating you up, Stephen. But they just won't actually confront each other. And there are several instances where we're told they they arrive on opposite sides of the river and they shout abuse at each other and go, yeah, we definitely have a fight if this river wasn't here. <laughs> and then one day it's too rainy for them to have a fight. And it's just all of these crazy excuses not to engage with each other. We're told at one point they have a secret meeting on a little island in the middle of a river where there's only the two of them. So obviously the chroniclers know everything that they said. Obviously, because it's just the two of them. And they're grumbling that all of their men won't fight for them properly. And you know, isn't this an absolute disaster? But I can't help wondering whether there is an element of these two having a bit too much respect for each other or liking each other, or maybe Henry feeling like he owes Stephen something and that it all goes back to to buying off his men, paying off his men, allowing him to maintain his honour when he was a younger boy that that henry doesn't have this incentive he doesn't hate stephen which makes it difficult to go into battle with someone with the intention of killing them if you actually quite like them and you feel like you owe them something so we have this little bit of a stalemate going on and it's it's actually broken by 
sadly, it's broken by Stephen's oldest son, Eustace, dying unexpectedly. So Eustace isn't happy that his dad won't fight Henry and starts going around ravaging the countryside a little bit, you know, as stroppy teenagers do. And he catches some, some unknown illness and he dies quite unexpectedly. Stephen has another son called William and William kind of makes it perfectly clear. I don't want any of this. Mm. I don't want to be king. None of this is for me. Thank you very much. He's already married to, you know, a really wealthy heiress. He's got lots of lands and titles. I'm very, very comfortable. Thank you. I quite like my head on my shoulders. Happy to stay out of it. And that allows Stephen to effectively, he adopts Henry. So Henry's father, Geoffrey, has died by this point. And Stephen formally adopts Henry and then names him as his heir. And everyone kind of thinks, well, that's worked out surprisingly well. They could see the problem with Eustace and Henry continuing all of they've they've had by this point almost 19 years of continual civil strife and dispute over it and they could see with henry and eustace two young men who were going to continue that indefinitely into the future and all of a sudden it's resolved and it's done and then we get this kind of slightly tense piece in which henry is working alongside stephen for a little bit you can see the the tension growing and Henry takes the decision to leave England. He trusts in Stephen being true to his word. And we're not quite sure, you know, how long this arrangement might have held up because Stephen actually dies within a year. Um, the, it's all formalised in Christmas 1153 and Stephen dies in October 1154. So it never really gets put to the test. But Henry is then comfortable enough and you know unlike his mother's situation he doesn't come over to england and get himself crowned until december so we get this full almost two month gap in in the rule in which someone else could have jumped in henry is leaving the space there for someone else to be able to do exactly what stephen had done to henry's mom but nobody does and i think perhaps that drives home the idea that there isn't the appetite anymore to continue this civil strife to to have someone jump in there knowing that henry is going to come over and, and claim the throne you would be opening up the kingdom to another 20 years of the same stuff going on and i think that shows us that the country's had enough of it particularly the nobles have had enough of it it's an interesting facet of the anarchy that we quite often have this portrayal of it as a bunch of ruthless barons being allowed to run wild in the countryside slaughtering peasants being cruel, having their wicked way with everybody and getting rich. But it's the barons who have had enough of all of this fighting. Barons actually, during this period, barons get rich and, and comfortable by being able to farm their lands and take produce to market and, and having a settled realm around them. They don't actually benefit all that much from civil war. So we see towards the end of the of Stephen's reign, we see these um, agreements being reached between the barons, where barons on Henry's side and barons on Stephen's side are writing contractual arrangements with each other to say, if we if if we end up on the same battlefield, I won't bring more than ten knights. If you don't bring more than ten knights, and I won't let Stephen attack you from one of my castles. If you don't let Henry attack me from one of your castles. So they are almost lifting themselves out and saying, you know, we can't refuse to fight for our, our leader, but what we can do is minimise our involvement. And they agree that any hostages that are taken or any loot that is taken will be returned after the battle without any charge. So this is really the Baron saying, do you know what? We're done. There is no appetite in England by 1154 for any more fighting. And that means that Henry can give this kind of breathing space before he comes over and is crowned and everybody is clear he's not rushing into it there are no other rivals there's no other king out there waiting it's henry now was he married by the time he became king just about so henry tries to invade england on several occasions during this period there's there's one moment where his father passes away while he's literally gathering a fleet and gathering men on the French coast, his father passes away, so he has to rush south. Then he tries to do it again, and there's a rebellion back in Anjou, so he has to rush south again. And the third time he's trying to do it, 
he he's almost ready to go and he gets this letter saying hi my name's Eleanor of Aquitaine you may or may not know I've recently been separated from the king and I quite like a new husband do you fancy the job and Henry literally drops everything and and runs south you know in cartoon fashion with his legs moving so fast he's slipping around all over the place Eleanor is probably the wealthiest heiress in Europe at this point she's been married to the French king Louis the seventh she's given him two daughters the problem for their relationship is she hasn't given him a son Louis as is always the case during this period it's clearly it's the woman's fault mm-hmm. that they're not having a son right yeah we all know that <laughs> um so Louis finds a way to to bring about the end of their marriage on the basis that they are too closely related and they should never have got married in the first place and Louis then goes on to remarry has a couple more daughters and then it's it's not until he gets to his third wife that he manages to eventually have a son interestingly Eleanor so she does marry Henry 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 rushes south very keen to marry her and kind of nine ten months after the marriage they have a son which must have really upset Louis <laughs> and probably made Eleanor laugh um although unfortunately that that first son wouldn't survive beyond infancy but Eleanor is is Duchess of Aquitaine which is probably the equivalent of about a third of the area that France covers today so it's the south and west of of France it borders with what is now Spain on the Iberian Peninsula it's huge territory really good wine producing territory really wealthy it has this reputation for being a really bright and lively place where there are um there's lots of poetry there's lots of music it's a a place where you get this intersection between Italy and the liveliness of southern Europe with the more dour northern Europe and I think when Eleanor had become Queen of France that arrival in Paris must have been a real shock to her system because Paris at this point is a pretty gloomy miserable straight-laced sensible place not like Aquitaine at all um so she, you know, when she's divorced, separated, her marriage is annulled from Louis. On the way back to Aquitaine, there are two attempts to abduct Eleanor in, in, the, in an attempt to remarry her, to forcibly marry her, because she's just worth so much. You marry Eleanor, you get control of all of this territory. Uh, the second attempt is actually by Henry's brother. Henry's little brother tries to, to make a name for himself by snatching Eleanor and marrying her and I think she must arrive back in Aquitaine and realize again like Matilda she's quite pragmatic about this the fact is I'm going to need a husband so is it better that it's someone who abducts me and forces me to marry them or shall I pick one shall I make my own choice and if she's looking at who's out there available in Henry you've got someone who is already Duke of Normandy who is Count of Anjou who also has Maine and Touraine these are the two counties north of Aquitaine who is making his bid for the English throne so he could one day be a king as well she needs someone who can rival Louis who can keep him away from her lands he's been trying to get Aquitaine for their daughters and he's not managed to do it yet but she's going to need some form of protection and if she's looking around she must be thinking that Henry looks like a pretty good bet there's someone who's going places you know here's a young man with a future who I could attach myself to so that I can protect Aquitaine. Now, I've got lots to offer him, but he has lots to offer me. There is a real sense of a, a partnership to it there. So Eleanor is, we're not entirely sure what year Eleanor is born, interestingly. Normally it's been, re- it's been recorded as uh, 1222, sorry, no. Normally it's been recorded as 1122, but more recently it's been suggested it was 1124. So this is based on a, a family um, genealogy that was created that gave her age in this, in a certain year. I think it gave her as 13 in 1137. So she would have been more, more likely born in 1124. So this year is her 800th birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's either kind of eight or 10 years older than Henry. So she is slightly older than him. And he clearly thinks this is a good deal as well. We know the two of them have met at least once before in Paris, 
So Henry goes to, to Louis's court to do homage for the Duchy of Normandy when Eleanor is still married to Louis. And later scandal, I mean, Eleanor is one of those people that scandal seems to just gravitate to. There are so many stories about her that just simply aren't true. Mm. But the, the first early scandal that we get involving her and Henry is that when Henry visited Louis's court, the idea is that they saw each other and fell immediately madly in love. But chroniclers say that during that visit, Eleanor slept with Henry's father, Geoffrey. Oh, it's rubbish. It's not true. There's absolutely no basis for it other than the desire to smear <laughs> Eleanor. I was just going to say, imagine that making a woman look bad. <laughs> I mean, who knew? It's, a, it's the first time it's ever happened, right? <laughs> right. Um, but these kind of stories just constantly follow Eleanor around everywhere. You know, she, she'd been on crusade with Louis and we'd had stories that she rode all the way to the Holy Land bare-breasted and made all of her ladies-in-waiting ride bare-breasted too. It's absolute nonsense. I mean, imagine the sunburn. That's what you're imagining. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I'm imagining. Um, but, and, there, and there's stories that while they were there, she had an affair with her own uncle, Raymond, the Prince of Antioch. Whoa. And this essentially stems from the fact that Raymond welcomed Louis and, and his niece, Eleanor, gave Louis lots of military advice about the Holy Land and said, you know, if we wanted to retake Jerusalem, we should do this and then this and then this. And Louis said, no, I'm just going straight to Jerusalem. I don't, I'm not listening to you. And Eleanor seems to have been saying, hang on, this, this is the guy on the ground who's been here for years, rules part of this territory. If he's giving you this strategic advice, shouldn't you listen? And Louis just keeps saying, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. Really, he just wants to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And Eleanor, you know, seems to have a bit of a go at Louis about all of this. There's some suggestion that she's refusing to leave Antioch to follow Louis's plan. And so the only explanation that chroniclers can come up for this is that Eleanor is sleeping with her own uncle. What other reason could she possibly have to disagree with Louis? Clearly, it's what the other? the only thing that can be going on. There is no <laughs> other explanation for this, Rebecca. They must be sleeping together. Obviously. Why, why look any further? Why think about it any more than that? So Eleanor is definitely someone who, for whom scandal seems to, to, to gravitate to. And I think it, it's a lot because she is an incredible personality. She clearly has an incredible will of her own. And medieval men really don't know how to deal with that. I mean, do modern men know how to deal with that? I don't know. No, no. <laughs> Whenever I hear about her, she just comes off as such a strong personality. And in her relationship with her husband, Henry, also seems like she clearly wore the pants. Is that a fair statement? <laughs> I, see, I don't know. I think there is much more of a partnership to Henry and Eleanor than, it, than we usually think there is. So their relationship is usually summarized as being quite confrontational quite feisty that henry is desperately trying to control eleanor who won't be controlled and it leads to you know you watch the lion in winter the fantastic film about them and it's constant snarky sniping at each other these one-liners you know at christmas henry saying what should we hang the holly or each other um and i don't think that's really the case they couldn't have had the amount of success that they had for as long as they had it if they didn't work incredibly well together as a team that doesn't mean they madly loved each other you know it's really really hard to see in medieval relationships whether people were in love whether they liked each other what i think we can say is whether they worked well together and in henry and eleanor's case i don't know of a med medieval relationship where two people worked better together the territories that they control at the height of their power are absolutely immense you know what we call the angevin empire runs from Scotland, it encompasses parts of Ireland, England, it runs all the way down through the western side of France to the, the Pyrenees mountains. It, it is an absolutely vast grouping of lands. And Henry, throughout his, his reign, at least up until the 1170s, is keen to employ Eleanor. She is regent in England on several occasions. She's regent in Anjou. She's regent in various places wherever he needs her to be. His mum, Matilda, 
Empress Matilda is his effectively his regent in Normandy until she passes away. But Eleanor is the one that he uses in various places. When he has to be somewhere else, he leaves Eleanor in control. So I think they actually, whether they loved each other, whether they got on is a different matter, but they worked as a partnership incredibly well, better than most other people during this period, I think. Well, then we know that things didn't necessarily turn out great between them. But when did that shift happen? Was this before or after the whole Beckett incident? It's after Beckett. So Beckett is an interesting moment. It's one of those things that I think was probably less of a deal for Henry most of the time than we think it was. Beckett is a fly in the ointment. He's a pain in the backside that Henry kind of created for himself and then can't get rid of. <laughs> so he he Beckett is his chancellor. So that's roughly the equivalent of a prime minister in England in Britain today. He's the sort of head of the government. Henry, Henry wants to get control over the, the English church. So it's still the, the Roman Catholic church, but the church in England, Henry wants control over it in a way that his grandfather, Henry I had. And so he harks back to things that his rights that his grandfather had, rights that William the Conqueror enjoyed in Normandy and in England. And he wants all of these things. And the church keeps saying, no, you can't have it. You know, we've, we've had lots and lots of, we've had the investiture crisis. We've had all sorts of disputes about who's in control of what. And it's really about who appoints bishops and all of that kind of thing. Henry wants it to be him. The church says it should be them. And so Henry's grand plan is to take Beckett, who is exceptionally competent. He is very, very good at what he does. And he thinks, well, if I make this guy Archbishop of Canterbury, put him in charge of the church, he can then just sign it all over to me. You know, I'll get my mate to do that for me. That'll be no problem. When the Archbishop of Canterbury dies, Henry calls Beckett over and says, you know, great news. You're going to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Isn't that great? And Beckett says, no, I don't want to do that. Why would I want to do that? I'm not even a priest. Why? How am I going to be Archbishop of Canterbury? But Henry effectively forces him to become Archbishop of Canterbury. And then he presents him with this document, you know, the Constitutions of Clarendon, sign over the church to me, Thomas. And Thomas goes, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and this is what leads to Beckett being sent off into exile. He's there for several years, but he makes such a nuisance of himself that by the, the end of this period in exile, the Pope and Louis in France have just had enough of him. Every time he tries to make, they try to make peace. So every time Henry and Louis have a peace meeting, Beckett turns up and throws a spanner in the works and causes everything to fly up in the air. So eventually they manage to, to reconcile. Um, Beckett goes back over to England essentially to perform uh, a coronation on Henry's youngest, uh, it's Henry's oldest son as heir. So they're trying to use this French method of crowning the heir during the king's lifetime as a way to ensure the succession. And Becket has really gone over to England to, to redo the ceremony. He Henry has it done by the Archbishop of York in an effort to annoy Becket and it works. So Becket goes over to do this, but as soon as he gets to England, he starts excommunicating all of Henry's ministers, anyone in the church that's been supportive of Henry. You know, he's just scattergunning excommunications all over the place. And that's what leads to Henry supposedly making this, you know, speech that's been remembered as who will rid me of this turbulent priest, which the nearest Latin that we have is more like a challenge. You know, what kind of men have I raised to allow their king to be treated like this? by some low-born priest sort of thing. But that leads to four knights riding away from Henry's Christmas court, believing that they've got instructions to go and murder the Archbishop of Canterbury. But there are points during the crisis where we see Eleanor, who by this point she's been effectively allowed to retire, I think, to Aquitaine. So they've had all of their children, four sons, three daughters that have survived, She's done an incredible job supporting Henry. But Eleanor, throughout her life, I think her real focus is always Aquitaine, Aquitaine's independence and Aquitaine's future. This is why we have this idea that Richard, the future Richard the Lionheart, is Eleanor's favourite son. What he actually is, is the one amongst their children who is 
made Duke of Aquitaine. So it might not be favourite son. I think it's the connection to Aquitaine that is important. I mean, he's he's conceived in Aquitaine as well. So she, I think she's been quite careful about mm. making sure there's lots of connections there. So she has gone to Aquitaine with Richard. He's invested there as Duke and she is effectively ruling Aquitaine and teaching Richard how to, to take care of this duchy that she's so concerned with. And this is quite often viewed as Henry pushing her away and distancing himself from Eleanor, that he's got younger mistresses and he just doesn't want his wife around anymore. But I would tend to view it as more like a reward. I mean, the, the mistresses that we're mostly thinking about here, people like Rosamond Clifford, Henry doesn't get involved with them till after Eleanor's gone anyway. So they aren't the reason that Eleanor is, is packed off. I would argue that here, Henry is saying to Eleanor, thank you for everything that you've done. I know what you really want is Aquitaine, so it's yours. You know, go and do it. Go and prepare our son to be the next Duke of an independent Aquitaine. That's what she's wanted all of her life. So I see that move to Aquitaine, not as a distancing between the two of them. They've never been a couple who spent time in each other's pockets. You know, they've they've always been apart, having to work in different places. Although the fact they've got seven children that survive tells us they were together a fair bit. <laughs> so I think there is no distance in that relationship there. And during that period, we know when Beckett, when the Pope is trying to get um, orders to England around Beckett's exile and to stop that first coronation of their, their oldest son as heir, Eleanor stops those Pope's orders from crossing the channel. Now, it's her that intercepts the messenger and delays him uh, and manages to stop him getting there in time. So they are still working together for the, the benefit of their, their dynasty and their family and the, the grander plan that is going on. So even if they hate each other by this point, they're clearly still making a pretty good team when they need to. But the real breach that history has seen in their relationship comes in the early 1170s when Henry the Young King, who is their, their oldest son, he's now crowned as heir in his lifetime in the Capetian style. And he's also married to Louis's daughter. So not one of the daughters that Louis had with Eleanor, because that would be double weird. <laughs> that would be weird. But one of, El one of Louis's other daughters with one of his other wives is married to Eleanor's son. So it is weird, but it's not really weird. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, Henry goes to visit his father-in-law and all of a sudden Louis is there saying, shouldn't you have lots of power and authority now? You know, aren't you a crowned king? What's your dad still doing getting in the way? You know, shouldn't the old man step aside and make way for you? And Louis, so Louis had been a junior king in exactly the same way before he became king. And he understood the purpose of that. You, it's not about giving you power and authority. It's about securing the succession and nothing more. So Louis is very definitely being mischievous is probably the nicest word I can, can give you for what he's doing. He's trying to cause trouble. He's trying to cause a rift. So the Angevin Empire by this point, they control far more land and territory than Louis does. He still doesn't have a son until quite late on. So to him, this huge block of, of power that's controlled by Henry and Eleanor is a huge threat. It's a big threat to his crown. So he's looking for ways to, to counter that threat. And I think driving a, a wedge between the family is the, the weapon of choice for Louis. And it's a tactic that his son, Philip, will continue when he becomes king as well. So we get Louis sort of saying to Henry, the young king, you know, why haven't you got any power? Why, why haven't you got some castles? Why do you have an army of your own? What, why isn't your dad letting you do this stuff? And Henry, Henry the Young King, being, from my reading of him, a bit of an idiot. You know, he seems to be, he, he's big on the tournament circuit. He's probably, you know, a high school jock kind of guy, bit of an idiot, but successful in, in the biggest sport in medieval Europe 
but he lacks any kind of political nous. And I think that's the big reason why Henry II continually denies Henry the Young King any power, even if he wanted to give it to him. He, he doesn't show any political aptitude at all. And eventually in the, the early 1170s, we get to a position where Henry falls out spectacularly with his dad, with, with Henry II. His brothers, uh, so he's got Richard is his next brother. Then there's a Geoffrey and then there's little John, who is too young to be involved in this phase of the revolt. Although from what we know about John, he almost certainly would have been in his nappy if he could have <laughs> been involved in making trouble while he was a baby. <laughs> But we get this this kind of rebellion, effectively, by Henry II's sons. They gather some nobles. They start getting an army together. They're attacking Normandy. They're making plans to invade England. And Henry manages to deal with all of this. You know, his sons aren't as competent as him. One of the things about Henry II, he's, I mean, I, I argue that he's probably the most competent man ever to sit on the throne of England. He is an incredible governor. He is militarily gifted. He's the kind of guy who turns up to the siege of a castle and the castle just seems to fall within a couple of days. He just has this gift. He knows his territories. He knows how to command men on the battlefield. And so he puts his sons down with no trouble whatsoever. And then history tells us normally that he discovers that Eleanor was the one who was behind all of this revolt, that she egged their sons on to do it. And for me, this sits alongside those ideas that she'd had an affair with Henry's dad, that she had an affair with her own uncle. This is just blaming the woman for what the men have done that is wrong. There is a story that she leaves Aquitaine, goes to travel to somewhere else, and that she's captured, and there's a suspicion that she's on her way to Paris, to, to go and join her sons and Louis. I would say it, it'd be a pretty weird situation if she was going to her ex-husband to try and start a war with her new husband. And all of the dangers that that brings to her family, to Aquitaine, to the dynasty that they're building, to the lands that they've got, she would be risking all of that for no really good reason that I can see. So Eleanor is, effectively she's arrested, brought back to England. Lots of other people are arrested too. Uh, they are all set free really quickly. Henry makes peace with his sons. They come to an arrangement about giving them, you know, devolving a little bit of power to each of them to give them a little bit of what they'd wanted in this rebellion. But Eleanor, we're told, remains Henry's prisoner under house arrest in England for the rest of his life. So for the next... Crikey, 15, 16 years, we're told that she is not forgiven and is held prisoner. I'm not sure that that's what really happened for several reasons. I think we have to play into this, the, the monkish chronicler's aptitude for blaming Eleanor for everything that goes wrong. If there'd been a tsunami in medieval France, it would have been Eleanor's fault. For some reason, something that she'd done, she would have caused it. She gets the blame for everything. But more than that, I think if you if you can accept that Henry and Eleanor were an incredible team who both had a vision of what they wanted to achieve and that that involved dynastic success, independence for Aquitaine, but this this huge gathering of lands that their sons would rule after them. I think we can see... Louis is very clearly causing trouble. I suspect Henry, and probably Eleanor as well, knew exactly what Louis was doing. He's playing on their stupid son's stupid issues <laughs> to, to drive a rift between them. And so I wonder whether we can see a situation in which what Eleanor has done has is to almost agree to take the blame so that Henry can be reconciled with their sons quickly. Because if it's not their fault, then they can smooth it over. They can make peace between them quickly. They can try to diffuse what Louis is doing to break up his grand scheme to split the family up. And she can kind of quietly take the blame for all of that. Because alongside 
those issues and those considerations is the fact that Eleanor appears to have got everything that she wanted when she's given Aquitaine and allowed to go there and rule. But actually, it all goes pretty horribly wrong. She's not having much success there. There are little rebellions lighting up all over the place that she's really struggling to get a grip on. So this situation also allows her to exit Aquitaine without admitting defeat, without having to say, actually, I couldn't do that job. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she, she's able to say, obviously, I'd still be in Aquitaine if I wasn't under house arrest. When she's in England, we know she, she lives primarily at Old Serum, which is her favourite castle. It's the castle that she's based herself at when she's been regent of England in the past. So she's in a favourite castle. She's got decent amounts of money. She's buying really nice clothes all of the time. She's surrounded by servants. You know, her household still costs a lot of money. So she's, she's not being kept in conditions that we might think are restrictive or, or in some form of imprisonment. We know that she attends family courts when her sons are there as well at Easter's and Christmas and things like that. So that would be odd if you think she's responsible for dragging their sons into open rebellion, that Henry would allow them to spend time together again. When Henry the Young King rebels against his dad again, because he's still an idiot who thinks he deserves more than he's got, he he dies during that rebellion and Henry is utterly distraught at this. We're told that uh, that Henry the Young King sort of sends word to his dad to say, you know, I'm, I'm dying, will you come to me? And Henry is, is ready to put his coat on and run out the door, but all of his advisors stop him and say, look, your son can't be trusted. He's He's done similar things to this before. The last time we went to to negotiate with Henry under a, a truce, he had crossbowmen open fire on them and, and they hit Henry II's horse and nearly hit him. You know, you can't trust what he's saying. So Henry um, takes one of the rings off his own finger and sends this to his son. And And when Henry the young king receives this, he understands that his dad's not coming, but he also understands that this is an act of of forgiveness that his dad doesn't hold a grudge against him and then we're told henry the young king you know he has a noose put around his neck he has himself dragged onto the floor and stones placed underneath him he has himself surrounded by ashes he has a hair shirt put on him he's clearly really sorry for the things that he's been doing wrong in his stupid but very short life um and then he does die and when word reaches henry we're told that he is absolutely in pieces. You know, despite all of the trouble that this son has caused him, there is a danger that we forget. This is a father who has lost a son in his 20s who he has invested his entire future in. Henry might have thought he wasn't politically apt and that he was a bit of an idiot, and I would agree. But that doesn't mean he didn't love him and it didn't mean he wasn't upset at his death. So the Chronicle accounts say that, you know, Henry disappears for days to the point where people worry whether he's he's gone in his chamber and died of grief. And who does Henry turn to in these moments? He turns to Eleanor. They start spending more time together. He goes back to England and spends time with her. He allows Eleanor to go and visit their son's tomb in Rouen. You know, these aren't the actions of a man who is being cruel to a woman he's keeping in prison because he he despises her for the trouble that she's caused him. I just think there is more to it than that. There is a more human element to it in which Eleanor effectively takes one for the team as a way to diffuse these efforts of the Capetian king in Paris to destroy their family. I think Henry II and Eleanor can see the game that Louis is playing when their sons can't and that Eleanor is just willing to take that hit to try to protect everything that they've built because they do remain close. When Henry needs someone, it's Eleanor that he turns to. That's the bottom line. Whoa, Matt, seriously, I feel like you have opened my eyes so much to this time period on things that I had no idea. I haven't really studied this period in royal history very much. And I think I've just always gone off of what we've been told, right? 
And like you said, there's reasons why we were being told the things that we were being told. And I thank you for coming on today and really opening my eyes and hopefully some of the other people listening or watching today to, to remember that it's not only in the Tudor period where we were told one thing, but find out it was another. This was happening well before then. And there's always a reason behind it. We have to remember that. Yeah, I think so. It's important to remember that whenever we think about people in history, they're still people. They might seem distant from us. Their actions might seem odd. But just think about putting yourself in that situation. They're, they're still people. They still have feelings and beliefs and they're deeper than the kind of one dimension that history sometimes leaves them. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And like I said, enlightening us to this period of history. Is there anything that you would like to leave the listeners with today? Um, go and buy all my books. That'd be really nice. Um, <laughs> you do have quite a few. Why don't you uh, let everybody know some of the books that they can look for? Uh, yeah, so I, I have a, a joint biography of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, which I guess is the most relevant to today but i've also written a book about the anarchy which we talked about a little bit earlier i've written a biography of henry iii who comes a little bit later um is the the grandson of henry ii and eleanor of aquitaine but my i guess my history home really is the wars of the roses in the 15th century so i've written a, an account of the wars of the roses a biography of richard duke of york who is the father of edward iv and richard iii and, and obviously richard iii is one of my big passions i've written a biography of him and also a book entitled the survival of the princes in the tower which probably gives away where i stand on the the mystery of the princes in the tower no, <laughs> no secrets here no secrets well matt thank you so much for coming on today thank you very very much for having me and i, I hope i can come back sooner than it's been since the last time i was on we'll make that happen <laughs> the tudor's dynasty podcast